from Lanyon Bowdler Solicitors. This is The Legal Lounge. Here's your host, Amanda Jones. Hello and welcome to The Legal Lounge. I'm Amanda and along with the lawyers and experts here at Lanyon Bowdler, I'll be bringing you a series of podcasts that cover many aspects of law in England and Wales. It's our aim to show you that the law isn't scary and nor are our lawyers. If you have a particular legal issue you'd like me to put to our specialists for an upcoming episode, please let us know by getting in touch through the website lblaw.co.uk forward slash podcast. Domestic abuse, what is it? In this episode, Gemma Hughes and Caroline York from our family team discuss the topic, explaining what constitutes domestic abuse and what support is available. Hello, I'm Gemma. Hi, I'm Caroline. And today we're talking about how family law can help protect someone experiencing domestic abuse. It is estimated that one in four women will experience domestic abuse over the course of her lifetime. Every 30 seconds, the police receive a call for help relating to domestic abuse. What I wanted to start with is the definition of what uh, domestic abuse is, because I think most people would immediately think of domestic violence and sort of physical abuse. There's no legal definition of domestic abuse, but the government have given a definition of it being any incident or pattern of incidents of controlling, coercive or threatening behaviour, violence or abuse. Now that takes a number of forms and I'm just wondering if you can take me through what forms those are, Caroline. Yeah, sure. As you alluded to, I think the traditional idea of domestic abuse has been physical violence um, and that's still very much um, covered under the definition uh, that was issued by the Home Office and has been um, expanded upon by the law. But there's also emotional and psychological abuse that's taken into account, sexual abuse and what used to be called financial abuse um, but has now again been widened slightly by by a recent domestic abuse bill to include economic abuse. It's a very subtle distinction, but it actually increases the protection and the kind of behaviour that that might qualify as economic abuse that might not have been taken into account before, and coercive control, as you've you've mentioned. It's helpful to remember that physical, it's not actually even just hitting someone. It can also be quite wide. It could be throwing objects in somebody's direction, uh, damaging the property, and is sort of exerting that control and dominance over... Uh, the weaker person. Yes, you, you'd very rarely find one form of abuse taking place in isolation. I think there, there are very blurred lines and so um, you would tend to find a number of these behaviours that we've just listed working alongside each other. Inevitably in any form of physical, economic or sexual abuse there's going to be an emotional element so there is going to be an automatic element of emotional or psychological abuse. And it could just be like name calling which you know sometimes it can be endearing in a relationship but there's that thin dividing line as to when it sort of goes into the territory of you know more concerning behaviour threats manipulation you know the the common term now is gaslighting and you hear that a lot in the in the press and I think it's very subjective each person has got their threshold and you have to respect that you mentioned about uh, obviously financial being expanded now to cover economic Mm. Can you give me an example of sort of what potentially uh, that could happen in in a household? An example that I've come across recently that might not have um, been taken into account as financial abuse before was a situation where someone's um, very controlling spouse um, and physically violent spouse had left the property. So she was, to all intents and purposes, um, safe if you looked at it from the outside. Um, But in the current circumstances, very reliant on working from home and um, he cancelled the internet subscription and shut down the contract knowing that because of her 
financial reliance upon him in the last couple of years that she would struggle to get a new contract herself uh, immediately. Um, it was at a key point in developing her career where she literally had to be able to work from home the next day. And it had a real impact upon her financially and professionally not to be able to work. Mm-hmm. So that would um, actually count now as economic abuse. Yeah. And also emotional, that can be criticism of somebody, mm. uh, sort of denigrating them, undermining them, making them feel guilty about doing their everyday sort of yes, activities. Um, and um, you could have examples uh, of being accused of infidelity if you so much as leave the house. Being asked to account for every penny you spend, having to produce um, bills for every time you go shopping. Mm. Being told that you are somehow less worthy than other people Mm. or that you are not deserving of certain everyday rights and benefits would qualify, Mm. yeah. And I think if people can recognise that type of behaviour, then obviously they need to seek some some help. Mm. Uh, um, I think the first important thing to highlight is is if that they are in any danger um, that they need to phone the police if their safety is at all sort of needing to be protected. Um, But if either the police are unable to help um, or perhaps that person doesn't want to pursue a criminal line, which is, you know, understandable sometimes, then they can come to a family solicitor and they can help. Once you've had that initial attendance uh, with somebody, what would be the first thing that you would sort of look at as, as options available? Um, I would want, first of all, to carry out an assessment, a somewhat objective assessment, to make sure that, from my perspective, I don't think there is an immediate risk of harm to them, and in particular, a risk of harm to a child. Mm. Um, and like a lot of professionals in any field, a solicitor could arguably have a duty to intervene if they felt that there was real danger to a child. So that's, that's very rare that that has to happen, but we do have to sometimes make clients aware that it would be a, the sensible thing for them to do to take some action so they can show other authorities that they are taking the necessary steps to protect themselves and that they're prioritising children. Um, But provided that objective assessment by me shows that there's no need for any other intervention um, and I can just carry on taking the lead of my client, if, if that makes sense, then I would be discussing with them various ways forward whether it's appropriate at this stage to send a warning letter to the other person if there is no immediate risk of danger and they really just wanted to give the the perpetrator a bit of a wake-up call that their behavior isn't appropriate then I have quite often sent a warning letter to the other person yeah and it's surprising how effective that can be you know getting a solicitor's letter it's just escalating that little bit more and acknowledging that you know the 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 victim has a concern and that you want to try and address it without potentially going to court and having the the cost of it so it's a way to try and keep matters not escalating further than they need to be i think there are situations as well where um maybe the perpetrator isn't really necessarily aware that what they're doing is becoming abusive it might be very early stages or they might have given the victim the impression that they're not strong enough to take any action. So I think when you then um, send a letter on headed paper to a perpetrator, it shifts the balance of power a little bit. Um, And I think it can just... I've seen situations where it just forces a person to sit back 
in, in a degree of um, surprise and shock sometimes mm-hmm. and, and evaluate their behaviour. Mm-hmm. What happens next can be very revealing. If perhaps the warning letter isn't appropriate because of the immediate risk of, of danger to the person or you've sent a warning letter and the behaviour is still persisting, um, then the next stage would probably uh, be making an application to the court for what is called a non-molestation order and also uh, potentially an occupation order. Can you uh, sort of give me a brief overview about what those two potential orders can can do? A non-molestation order is an order that regulates um, a person's behaviour towards another person. So um, the kind of standard terms that you could see in, um, in a non-molestation order, which is a sort of injunction, people might be more familiar with the word injunction, the order could contain clauses preventing uh, one person from contacting the other by any means whatsoever and it can uh, the, the order will be very clear as to what sort of communication is banned so that could be direct uh, communication phone calls letters text messages facebook any form of social media it will generally also prohibit the perpetrator from getting anybody to do those things on his or her behalf so they can't just get their friends involved to do it you could um, have a restriction on them being within the vicinity of the victim of the complainant or within the vicinity of their home Mm -hmm. or any place that they know the complainant will be such as work or staying with a friend to get some time out and i think it's important to remember that the order can be very flexible yes so i get a lot of parents who say well I don't want anything to do with the other party. However, I've still got to organise contact arrangements for yes. children. So you could have an order whereby the other party is not allowed to contact uh, your client, except for the purposes of the contact arrangements. And it's quite a narrow issue then. And I think that sometimes helps as a, as a sort of a hybrid method of um, sort of allowing that. And similarly, in terms of collection from the house, perhaps for contact, it could just be 100 metres down the road, still allowing your client to have that confidence and safety that they're not allowed to enter the property and it's good that i think you can that you have the, the flexibility to recognize the other priorities in the family mm-hmm. um so if for example it is still felt appropriate for the children to have contact that they don't suffer as a result of this you don't create more victims and then the occupation order that's an order that um as the name suggests regulates who should occupy the the marital or cohabiting property so it has the power to uh, well, the, 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 op- the effect of an occupation order would be to exclude one person from the property that the parties previously shared. I should say at this stage that we may come on to this in more detail, but uh, they are two separate orders that you apply for, although you can apply for them at the same time, but they, have, they are standalone and they're independent. Quite often, if the harm or the risk of harm is sufficient, then the court will consider making an immediate non-molestation order uh, without even hearing from the other person. So the applicant, the person, the complainant, can quite often get an order that the court will make based solely on their evidence uh, and will ask the alleged perpetrator to come back to court a few days or weeks later so they can be heard. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's pretty unusual to be able to get an occupation order on that basis. Um, the courts take the view that a non-molestation order is essentially just regulating behaviour but removing someone from their home or pro- prohibiting them from going into it is seen to be a pretty significant power and the court would be very reluctant to do that without 
hearing from both parties. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's important to emphasise at this stage that they are two very separate orders and that they're also enforced differently. Yeah. And I think that's important to highlight. The non-molestation order can be achieved quite quickly. You could have somebody contact you that morning and you know you could have the order by the end of the yes. day. And that sort of highlights one of the positives of this compared to perhaps criminal proceedings where the police may take a little longer to assess evidence, whereas if you can get all the information to a judge a judge can make a a decision quite quickly. Can I just interject at that point and mention, you mentioned the police and you mentioned about the time it can sometimes take. There are things called domestic violence protection notices Mm -hmm. uh, that the police can issue. And I won't go into too much detail about them, but in a situation where you notify the police that domestic abuse is taking place and they come out and, and look into the situation, the police do have the power to ask the perpetrator to leave the property there and then and the police can then go and apply for a domestic violence or is surely to be changed to domestic abuse protection order and if they achieve that order it has the power to keep the perpetrator out of the house for up to 28 days the effect of that is it gives the victim a little bit of breathing space to consider his or her options so it might be then that actually with the benefit of those 28 days to, to, to get some to get some headspace mm. you find other solutions that mean you don't need to go down the route of of getting an injunction you don't yeah. need to go down the route of involving solicitors because you could find very practical solutions within those 28 days that actually work for everybody mm. and, and and keep the litigation out of it. So I think it's important just to mention them at this point. Not everybody can get uh, apply for a, for a non-molestation order no. under the Family Law Act. No. Um, there are what we call as associated persons. They've just got to have a connection. Yeah, please don't make me go through the list. Because <laughs> I can't remember it. It's a pretty comprehensive list, but uh, they're the obvious people in there, uh, you know, spouses. Um, but it's not also just a kind of having a relationship. It could be a mother or a, a sibling yes. or anything. Relatives. That, exactly. Um, again, define relative that's always a different you know third cousin (laughs) twice removed I'm not sure um but the list is pretty comprehensive I find that you're fairly hard pushed for your client to be excluded from that list unless they're you know unless they they really have come through to the wrong department then um more times than not um, they would be eligible under that list of associated persons to apply for that order. And another thing just to bear in mind is is that if somebody has moved property and they're afraid of the person they can keep their address confidential, the court will know it but um, they don't have to yeah. let the other person yeah. know yeah. that yeah. too. Yeah. And then if um, that person is successful in obtaining a non-molestation order then you've got to get that uh, document served on the other party. Yes. There can be various methods of service. It used to traditionally be personal service but I think the, the courts have recognised that and sort of widened it where it could be Facebook service I mean ideally personal service is always the best but absolutely um, there's, there's no replacement for seeing the whites of the eyes yeah, exactly. and also it could be quite revealing um, when you hear back from the process server as to how the, the, the respondent has behaved when they've been served mm-hmm. that can be quite indicative of, of how things are going to move on I've actually seen in my own career situations where the respondent who's not known anything about this has really been quite shocked um, and and quite remorseful that it's actually come to this Mm -hmm. and things have calmed down dramatically Mm -hmm. afterwards Um, but you know equally they can kick off and uh, you you know what you're dealing with but I have also actually had a situation years ago where the judge did permit me to serve the order by Facebook was pretty unique set of circumstances but it was the only way of finding the respondent it was really important that we we served him and so I was in I was permitted
decided to use uh, Facebook to do so. And then once that order has been made, it's been served on the other party, you can then send that uh, non-molestation order to the police. Yes. Uh, so they've got a record of it. Yes. Because I think this is the important distinction is, is whilst it is a civil order, if there is a breach of a non-molestation order, it is a criminal offence. It is with up to five years imprisonment yes so that's why it is a a sort of not an order to be undertaken lightly and the judge will obviously weigh up all of these factors uh, but it is a serious breach of an order very much so um, and breaching it um, is of itself a criminal offence but in the course of breaching it you might commit a separate criminal offence. So a person could technically land themselves in very hot water if they don't And it's follow. from the moment that they've got that paperwork, they know Or that they're it. aware of it. Exactly, that, that that's it then. The respondent will have an opportunity to put his side uh, or her side uh, of the order to, to the judge at a return date hearing. So we've had the first one where it may or may not have had the other person present. And the second one would be a chance where the court find out in whether that other person Person is prepared to accept that order and they usually last about six or 12 months yeah. in practical sense or whether they would like to challenge it mm-hmm. uh, and then if they challenge it it would go to a final hearing where he would uh, have a chance to do a statement there is a sort of a, a, another option um, which can can be helpful and it's something to bear in mind called an undertaking which would replace the the non-molestation order undertakings um, are binding promises solemn promises to the court so they're not to be taken lightly but first of all they have the effect of um, if they're accepted they have the effect of bringing the, those these proceedings to an end um, with no further hearings hopefully so a respondent may come to court and their representative may say my client's prepared to offer undertaking undertakings not to behave in a certain way and not to do certain things um, is first of all for the applicant for the complainant to decide if they want to go down that route um, and quite often people are prepared to because first of all it can save the costs of further proceedings and if the behavior um, alleged is quote-unquote low level um, they might actually feel that this has been an effective way of, of, of making the perpetrator consider yeah. their behavior. and if the respondent is agreeing to it rather than it being imposed yes. on them, there might be a sense that they would adhere to a that rather than it, it. Exactly. Yes. But even then, even if both parties agree that they want to go down this route, it's the final, the, the final decision is made by the court as to whether the court feels that it is safe to dispense with the proceedings and simply have undertakings. Mm-hmm. This is because although um, an undertaking is enforceable and is a, a binding promise to the court and breaching an undertaking is a contempt of court, it's not a criminal offence in the same way that breaching a non-molestation order would be. So you couldn't involve the police immediately if a person breached an undertaking. You would have to come back to court and bring committal proceedings, which can inevitably be uh, more expensive, Mm. more long-winded, and you can just find the evidence harder to to gather at that Mm. point. And you've got to do a lot of it yourself, whereas the breach of a non-molestation order means that it's dealt with by the police who are experienced in evidence gathering and handling. Mm. So I think you do have to weigh up whether you believe that the person offering the undertaking really is genuine about intending not to misbehave in the future. If there's any suspicion that they are just offering it to to essentially get off lightly, then it's possibly wise not to to accept it. And it's also important to mention that legal aid um, can be available with domestic violence uh, cases. Yes, it can. Um, And you... 
it's one of the few situations in which uh, legal aid is still available. Uh, you have to qualify financially, so you either have to be on a certain list of benefits or your income has to fall below a certain threshold if you're not on any benefits. You do also have to have evidence of domestic abuse. Um, and again, the list of, of acceptable evidence is quite restricted. The most common forms of evidence would be from women's aid, if a person had been referred to them. Um, there's a standard letter they can write. A GP can also be really helpful. Um, obviously, evidence of previous criminal convictions against the, the perpetrator will be evidence as well. So I would say that if a person has any suspicion at all that they'd be eligible for legal aid, they should seek immediate legal advice. And also um, they can find out a lot by Googling um, legal aid eligibility. That will probably take them to the Legal Aid Agency website and there's quite a comprehensive list of requirements there. I think it's important to highlight to um, anyone who is in this situation that there's a lot of charities out there who can offer some support, guidance, because you're dealing with the end of of a relationship which is which is very hard in itself uh, coupled with potentially troubling behavior from the perpetrator um, there are places like refuges where people can escape to in an emergency situation I have to say I've visited one and I was amazed how homely it is and I know lots of people sort of I certainly had a, a an image in my head which was so far from reality it's just a lovely environment where it, sometimes it puts people off in thinking I don't want to go down mm. that road mm. um, but it's you know it is it, it is a, an option available to people and there's obviously the national domestic helpline and have you already mentioned women's aid women's aid are also great because again I think traditionally people thought women's aid uh, was there to put you into a refuge um, but that's really I would say the tip of the iceberg of their work and they are so experienced um, in signposting you to other resources that can help you um, even if it's just having an outreach worker um, who can speak to you on the phone or zoom you um, if it's safe meet you for a coffee these days they've also got a lot of in-house uh, resources they can offer something that I quite often recommend to clients is um, the freedom program which is a programme piloted by Women's Aid, uh, which is an opportunity for usually women to meet in a group or obviously by now Zoom group setting and examine the kind of behaviours that they've experienced and find ways of managing and dealing with those whilst also coming to terms with the fact that this was not their fault mm -hmm. and managing it in a healthy way so that they avoid it being repeated in the future or going into another relationship. Exactly. It's about that shared experience and basically saying the perpetrator will often make that person feel that they are the problem yes. and they're not and I think if you can hear very similar patterns of behavior that the perpetrators have you know on their victim that I think it helps them to understand do you know what it wasn't me it was you know it was him that he was making me feel like this that anything happened it was always my fault and having that and exploring that with with other people who have gone through this is quite empowering for that person I think it's about cracking the shell that's been built up and eventually then just dismantling it but doing it in a safe nurturing way so that a person isn't just left to deal with this realization on their own which can be really you know having spoken to clients really quite overwhelming so again if it's if it's dealt with in a structured gentle supported way um, it can actually be a very healthy um, you can take some very healthy lessons out of it I've had clients who went on the freedom program 
who've gone on to actually teach the Freedom Programme themselves Aww. and run their own groups, which Aww. is just amazing. It's like a little success that's story fantastic. in itself, Yeah, that's some it? of my proudest, proudest moments. <laughs> and, and GPs can also help and direct people, and it, they're quite good for confidants. And I'd also mention that there is Claire's Law as well, where you can go to the police station and find out if you are think that you know your partner may have had uh, sort of previous domestic violence yes. incidents and also a, a close family member or friend can also do it on that person's behalf because I would say sometimes the victim doesn't know that they are in an abusive relationship particularly if they don't have the bruises and you know they feel that that doesn't follow a particular pattern which they thought was you know the domestic abuse pattern that somebody can see it from the outside and and see what what they are going through having somebody else being able to do it for you means that if you are frightened that um you will be found out as the person having made that check you can somehow absolve yourself from responsibility for it and there'll be somebody you trust who who is happy to carry the can in a sense and, and do that for you so i think in conclusion what we would say is there are options available for people out there and firstly potentially it might be the police and that they could offer the domestic violence protection notice yeah. we could be doing a warning letter to that person uh, and then the sort of the last option might be the non-molestation order and the occupation order which is probably the most draconian in that it's starting the, 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 the divorce proceedings but there's lots of charities out there who are going to help and support somebody to access support as and when they want it it might just be the telephone call that they make to women's aid and nothing happens then for the next two four six months but it's just starting that process and being heard I, I also in the first meeting tend to look at it a little bit more holistically and try and look at the end result as well because I have said to clients before it can feel very tempting more so in the case of a person who says if I get a non-molestation order he or she's only going to breach it anyway and what you then have to say is all right if we're looking at that being fairly inevitable we also have to look at the impact on the family if you're forced into enforcing the order then. So if you believe that the other person is going to breach it and you're going to have to involve the police and it's likely to result in some sort of criminal conviction for them, especially if they've got previous criminal convictions, what impact on the family would it have if that person then lost their job or went to prison and couldn't pay the mortgage, couldn't pay child maintenance? You have to have, I think, a sense of the bigger picture rather than just heading off down this tunnel towards this light at the end. Yeah, um, and it's it a temporary sort of healthy. plaster because an order, as we've already said, is only last six to 12 months. Yeah. So there has to be a sort of a long-term solution yeah. in, in yeah. moving it forward. And, and I think just sometimes having spoken, it's the same as, having, as, as, when you, as when someone speaks to women's aid. I think just sometimes um, speaking to a solicitor is the first part of the path of realising that this isn't your fault, um, you're not unique. I often have clients who say to me, so do you hear this very often? And you say all the time. And the light goes on and they go, actually, I'm not abnormal. I've been told all of my faults for weeks, months, years. You mean there are other people like me? And then suddenly the whole conversation changes course from I need to get an injunction, I need to do this, I need to do that because that's the only way I'm going to be taken seriously to right, well, okay, well, what do you tend to do for those people then? And then we find other solutions and they, they go away feeling stronger because they're not alone in it. That can be so much healthier than, than heading straight down to court. 
Thanks to Gemma and Caroline for lending their expertise. Yet more proof that lawyers don't bite. If you need legal help from either of them, please get in touch through lblaw.co.uk. That's lblaw.co.uk. And if you have a particular legal issue you'd like me to put to our specialists for an upcoming episode, please let us know by visiting lblaw.co.uk forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy the show and find any of the conversations interesting or helpful, please remember to use your podcast app to follow The Legal Lounge so that you never miss an episode. That was The Legal Lounge from Lanyon Bowdler Solicitors. Visit lblaw.co.uk slash podcast for helpful resources. And please do follow or subscribe on your podcast app so you never miss an episode.